0: Hi everyone. Before we begin, I wanted to say a big thank you for being here today and listening to the show. If you'd like to support Behind the Smile, you can do so by following this podcast and leaving a five-star review. Every rating and review helps this podcast to grow, meaning more people can discover these stories and find hope along their own journey. If you'd like to check out this week's Behind the Smile photo, head to ashbutters.com where you'll find all of the episode show notes. And with that, let's kick off this week's episode. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of behind the smile today in the studio we have katherine elliott kath is an alcohol and binge drinking coach and a mum of three who has survived breast cancer kath made the decision to get sober in july 2019 after three decades of binge drinking six weeks later she was diagnosed with an aggressive type of breast cancer This sparked a desire to research and understand more about the links between excessive alcohol consumption and breast cancer. The evidence she uncovered was shocking. Today, Kath is cancer-free and is sharing her story to help educate other women on the dangers of excessive drinking. And with that, I'd love to welcome Kath into the studio and onto the show. Kath,
1: welcome to Behind the Smile. How are you today? Ash, I'm so happy to be here. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for having me.
0: It's such a pleasure. I mean, we connected, gosh, months ago now on social media, and I've been following your journey. You've been following mine. It's been such a great place just to stay in touch and meet these like-minded people who share a passion around alcohol and alcohol awareness.
1: Absolutely. It is. This space and this community is just so beautiful and supportive and that's what I love about it. So the more people that come into it, you just feel like there's this big warm hug around the whole community and that's what I love about it.
0: Mm, I couldn't agree with you more. So Kath, I'd love for our audience to get to know you a little bit better. Can we start off with you sharing where you live, what does an average day look like
1: and what do you do for fun? Great. Three great questions. So I live in Melbourne. I live in the eastern suburbs in Melbourne. And um, an average day for me is, I don't even know if I have an average day to be honest, because I work for myself, it's really different. So today, for instance, I uh, i got up at 6am, I meditated, I took my beautiful cocker spaniel for a walk. I came back I got my kids sort of ready to go out the door to school. I then did a radio, a pre-record for a radio interview. I sat down and did some pre-work for some of my clients as I'm an alcohol coach. And uh, then I've driven over here to do a podcast interview with you. And then the rest of the day, I've got an International Women's Day event uh, later on this evening. I will uh, also most likely go for another walk or do some exercise. I love to spend time by myself if I get an opportunity to do that Mm. because I find it incredibly energising and it's a really great time for me to think as well. And, of course, you know, I have three teenage sons so I've got a busy sort of family life as well. So there'll be probably a sporting activity or something to get the boys to. (laughs) too. <laughs> that sounds like a very full plate. Where do you find time to enjoy your hobbies or outlets? So I've, I, I'd have lots and lots of different hobbies actually um, and that has been an absolute benefit of an alcohol-free lifestyle. I've started to explore even more things I've always loved doing. Uh, I've loved being out in nature and hiking and so I'm tr- I try and do that as much as possible. I've just started to explore cold water therapy mm. which uh, I I went to a fantastic uh, ice bath retreat uh, up in Dalesford last year and it's just really spurred me on to to really explore it and so now I have cold showers twice a day wow <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brave <laughs> and I look I love reading as well I'm into a lot of personal development uh, and um, one of the other things that I'm really passionate about is just being in community and connection with like-minded people so I have a beautiful circle of female friends in Hawthorne uh, and we catch up we have a women's circle every Friday, which is just beautiful. We connect on the deeper, the deeper things in life rather than just the the superficial the surface layer. You know. That
0: sounds beautiful.
1: How did you uncover this community? Well, it, it's so interesting. I think you kind of attracted in in a way. And we we've all acknowledged that yes, we probably all arrived in Hawthorne together and we connected through there was one particular friend who is really good at connecting people and so she mm. brought us together and started this women's circle and two of two of my very close friends started to hold the circle and that was seven years ago. And so the the connections that we've formed over that time have been quite remarkable as women in their early 40s now moving into their late 40s and, and 50s. It's been just Yeah, a really remarkable transition as well in life. Mm. I love what you've
0: touched on there as well, because what that demonstrates to me is I often talk about when we choose to live an alcohol-free life, one of the most important pillars to that is connection. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to connect with a sober community. It may be that you find a group of like-minded men or women who are wanting to improve their life and that's where you
1: start to find your your group. Oh, absolutely. And it was interestingly I found these women before I stopped drinking. This group, but alcohol was never part of our connection or our social events mm. at all. Mm. And interestingly, when I decided to step away from drinking, it it didn't have any effect on on this this community of people that I caught up with because alcohol did not play uh, much of a role in anything that we ever did. Mm.
0: Sounds like an incredibly powerful group of women
1: and such a soulful connection that you found there. Absolutely we, in, we our WhatsApp group is <laughs> the top the the name of our WhatsApp group is the Cauldron Sisters. <laughs> I
0: love that.
1: That's brilliant, Kath. (laughs) Creating lots of magic. (laughs) And I love that we're talking about this on International Women's Day as well. I know. Couldn't be more perfect. (laughs) Happy International Women's Day, Kath. To you too,
0: Ash. (laughs) All right. Now, Kath, I've asked you to bring in a photo with you today. You've got a huge story, but I'd love to start with this photo. Now the photo is from a time in your life where you were hiding behind a smile. So you were projecting one version of yourself to the world, but the reality was you were struggling on the inside. Can you please describe for our listeners what's going on in this photo? Who's in it? Where are you? And what was going on for you
1: internally at that time? Yeah, this photo, um, gosh, I've just got like tears coming up even looking at it. It's a photo taken of, um, of me and my husband and our three little boys um, at my parents' house. And I think it was taken in a, around about 2014. And I look happy enough. I'm smiling and there's a bit of sun in my eyes. My boys are probably four, three and, and maybe one or two, maybe mm. a bit older. Um, this photo was taken the day after my youngest brother's wedding and... I think if you look really closely at the photo, you will see on my left hand that I have a little bit of bandage and that is there because I had fallen down at the end of the night and really hurt myself. Mm. And I'd woken up this morning, uh, the photo was taken, and I couldn't remember how I'd gotten home and I had this horrible feeling that I'd had maybe an interaction with my mum but I wasn't sure and I had this feeling in my stomach of shame and embarrassment and I just didn't know what to do with it. I had a very throbbing hand and my husband said to me, oh, do you remember falling over at the end of the night? And I said, no, I don't. Mm. And then I thought... "Mm." I wonder what's happened with my mum and thought, do I reach out to her or do I wait? And um, I got a text message probably at about 9am from my mum uh, asking me if I was okay and could I come over and have a have a chat with her about what had happened the night before. Mm. And of course I couldn't really remember what happened the mm. night before. So this photo uh, is just a real reminder of here I was fronting up the next day but I was feeling so ashamed after I'd found out what I'd done Mm -hmm. the night before. Mm. There
0: really is no way to describe that feeling. I call it guilt, shame and remorse where you wake up the next day, you don't have any recollection of what happened but you have that feeling in your gut that you either behaved or said something that was outside of your normal values and it's like this real disconnect from the person that you want to be versus the person that showed up or that personality change that occurs
1: when alcohol enters our system. So true and I I could see the pain in my mum's eyes as well Um, and I know that what i said to her i was a bit aggressive it was coming from a place of you know i think i at the at that point in time in my life i was going through you know we were going through some real difficulties in our marriage financially we'd had some huge problems that were going on mm. so i had lots of layers of stress i was juggling full time work three little kids and i just drank so much so quickly at Mm. my brother's wedding I was in the bridal party and yeah I could feel it happening Mm. I could feel it was all happening out of control and um when I spoke to mum the next day she yeah she said to me I'm yeah I'm just really shocked she was so angry and I felt really I felt like I had tarred my brother's wedding for Mm. my mum Mm. and I'd done it in front of some of her friends and it's just not who I want to be like I I have always seen myself as a very loyal person who communicates openly and also in a timely way as well it just wasn't the right situation. Yeah and did that conversation with your mum open up
0: what was really going on on the inside
1: or were you just not ready to go there yet? It did a little bit, yeah. I think it it actually came from a place. I had a go at my mum because she, I didn't feel like she told me that I looked mm. beautiful. Or I looked, gro- I looked good in my bridesmaid's outfit, mm. <laughs> and so it, there was obviously this feeling of not enough yeah. and not getting the affirmation from from her, and I guess you know, looking back at my my family and the you know, the my family of origin, I think there was this piece there that I absolutely know my mum and dad love me and loved me and have given me so much. But one of the things that we have found difficult in our family is to give each other sort of compliments mm-hmm. and to actually hug and kiss Mm. and show each other touch. Mm. And so again, you know, it just brought up this conversation. So I was able to communicate some of it to her. Uh, The thing that I haven't done yet is I have apologised to mum through podcasts and said things and talked about this, but I haven't actually in my sober life actually sat down with her and had a really direct conversation about what happened. Mm. And so as we as I was driving here, I was thinking that's what I want to do. I want to have a conversation with mum and take responsibility for what happened that night Mm. and to yeah just to I think for me that would allow me to to release still probably some shame and guilt that I have around what happened.
0: Oh, it would be incredibly healing. And this is the gifts of sobriety, isn't it? We get to look back at our lives and make amends and clean up the wreckage of our past and then make a commitment to live in a different light moving
1: forward. So true, Ash. I think the the clarity that you – and the lens, and I always see – that the lens that you see your life through now living sober or alcohol-free is is so different Mm. and it gives you a perspective. Mm. Uh, And for me, having, you know, I had 40 – well, I was 46 when I stopped drinking so that was probably, you know, over 30 years of drinking. Looking back at so much that happened in my life, I didn't even realise – that alcohol had had such an impact on my relationships, on friendships, on decisions, on choices that I'd made. Mm, mm. And when I look back now with this lens, I can see it all so clearly. Yeah, it's that, that beauty of hindsight, isn't it? It really is.
0: That's a perfect segue to what I'd love to now talk about, which is a little bit more about your childhood. So you mentioned that Due to your family dynamic, there were perhaps some core beliefs that you were starting to develop from a young age. You know, I'm not good enough. And perhaps you were looking for certain types of love that you weren't receiving. Can you tell me a little bit more about what's your memory of your childhood? Were there any incidences that stick out to you that may have influenced your relationship with
1: alcohol in your later years? So I'm the oldest of four children. I'm the only daughter, and then I have three brothers. Uh, and look, I guess from the outside, we we had a very you know privileged upbringing, and my parents were beautiful, loving parents, and there was no trauma I- in my life. I was always a very independent uh, person, uh, and always wanted to do things for myself, and. My, my mum was my mum was born into a family of all girls and my dad was born into a family of all boys and so it was quite an interesting you know dynamic even the two of them coming together but they've always had a very you know they've had a close relationship and and, and even now they've incredibly they've just got so much in common and so in terms of my family life I felt supported and loved, even though I didn't feel like we were able to express um, physically. Mm. That just it wasn't something that was role modelled to me by my parents, mm. and we didn't get a lot of it at home. It was more shown through encouragement and words, but not deep sort of, you know, deep words, I guess. And I think there was always this yearning in me for more, mm. and that. There was an element to the to my soul that had not been explored. You know, I was born very prematurely as well. Um, I was born nine weeks prematurely. Wow! Um, at a hospital in Ham- in Hamilton in um, Regional Victoria, they just got their first humidity crib a week before I was. Unexpected, unexpectedly born there mm. so I feel like that was all sort of you know a reason well it's so
0: interesting that you say that you didn't have any trauma as a child because if you read the work of Dr Gabor Marte he would say that that would be a traumatic life event being born nine weeks early and then rather than going straight into the arms of your mother
1: or your father you went into a humidity crib. Absolutely. And that's so true. And there were really no photos taken of me as a little firstborn because Mm. mum and dad were very nervous that maybe I wasn't going to make it Mm. because mum had lost a child um, at 20 weeks before Mm. I was born. And so even that for me has been a little bit It actually, you're right, has been a little bit traumatic. I often go, oh, there's only... The first photo I saw of myself was I think when I came home from hospital, maybe about six weeks, six weeks later. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a really interesting point that you make. Mm. I did have a traumatic entry into into this life.
0: Mm. Mm. When you say your parents showed love through encouragement... Was that by any chance attached to uh, perfectionism or striving? Like, did you feel like you needed to achieve, either do well at school or get um, first place at the racing carnival to,
1: to feel acknowledged and loved? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think. I was always a really hard worker at school academically. I was actually also quite naughty at school. I had that real um, contrast. I was the Um, same. (laughs) So, (laughs) yes. So really interestingly though, that, you know, for my parents, my dad's a doctor and my mum was, you know, highly academically really intelligent um for them it was really important for us to achieve at school and get good marks and to work hard Mm. and so I got involved in all sorts of things I was a prefect in year 12 but I was also very much as a 14 and 15 year old really rebelling against that type of upbringing as well I was sneaking out I was going to nightclubs uh, you know at 14 i was mm. drinking mm. at 14 i was stealing alcohol from my parents and what happened with with my drinking was i realized that i could hold quite a lot of alcohol for 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 a girl mm. and i started to get a lot of positive affirmation around that from the the men and the guys that i hung around with mm. uh to the extent of i was really well known as someone who could drink with the boys who could stay up with the boys and for me this really it was like i wore it as a badge of honor and so my drinking became very much a positive part of my identity yeah and one that i didn't really see a problem with when i was 16 17 18 going into my you know, into my early 20s, I saw it as something to actually be really proud of.
0: And it's starting to form, like you said, your identity and your character. So even if your drinking was related to consequences or bad behaviour or bad actions, the last thing you're going to do is stop drinking. If that is who you are, you you can't stop being yourself, right? Or that would be the process or the thought pattern, I would imagine.
1: Absolutely. I mean, one of the things when I eventually decided to be alcohol free was unpacking what I guess an intrinsic part of my identity particularly as a young teenager this drinking had had taken and formed Mm. and just to really acknowledge that and to let go of that and to grieve that as well because there had been lots of positive fun times associated with that but it morphed into something that really became a lot more dysfunctional and sinister and of course didn't align with my own personal values and who I wanted to be. Mm. You describe yourself as being a binge drinker. Mm.
0: Was your drinking always that way and how did it progress over the years?
1: Yes, my my drinking was always binge drinking and in my I guess my description of Of binge drinking is really event and episode and weekend binge drinking rather than daily binge drinking. So I was never a daily drinker. It was very much weekends, Thursday nights to Sundays. I'd just be on and then I'd be off and then I'd be on and then I'd be off. Holidays, concerts, even going to the footy, you know, I'm an avid AFL footy fan, so drinking at the footy was like a big thing for me as mm. well. And, you know, some of the I guess even some of the shameful memories I have of going to of going to football matches that, you know, I can't really remember. And oh, yeah. having, you know, huge fights with my husband afterwards because we're both drunk. Mm. And thinking, I wish I had that memory of that match that my team's Carlton, that they won and a close final or something and I can't because I was too drunk. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so my binge drinking, I think it has had, was present in my life really from about the age of 15 or 16 and I went through periods where I didn't drink when I was pregnant, I wasn't drinking much. I would often take a month or two away from drinking but I always found myself back in this very dysfunctional pattern of seeking some form of oblivion and loss of control through alcohol, mm. because that, was for me, was what I enjoyed. I enjoyed, for someone who has, you know, a lot of self-control and discipline in their life, and also a commitment to doing exercise and the meditation and you know watching their diet and all of that sort of thing. Mm. there was this opportunity in alcohol to let go Mm. and that's what happened. That's why I would seek refuge there.
0: Yeah, it's almost like a way
1: to escape. Mm -hmm. Did your
0: drinking ever have any negative impacts
1: in terms of either your work or your relationships? Definitely, definitely my relationships. Uh, Not so much work. Interestingly, I never drank at work functions. So Mm. someone who has a lot of control like I do, that was just a no-go zone for me. So most of my drinking happened in my personal life. Look, there were occasionally a couple of work events when I was interstate where I may have drank a bit, but it it didn't affect my working life uh, really at all. Uh, It did absolutely affect my personal life though mm. um, throughout my 20s and 30s and 40s hugely. Uh, when did you meet your husband? I met him when I was 28. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Got married. we were married at 29 and a half mm. and we met through lots of drinking, lots of partying. Uh, it was, that was how we connected and we did a lot of that in our relationship. Alcohol played a big role in our relationship going to bars, drinking at home on the weekend, you know, all of that kind of thing.
0: It's really interesting you describe that. I think a lot of people listening could probably relate to that. How then have you managed being sober? Because I think if you've got a relationship with somebody where you love on a Friday evening to sit down and share a bottle of wine and talk about your week – I imagine that would probably be a resistance or a fear that somebody would throw up in opposition of giving
1: up alcohol. So how do you guys manage that these days? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Well, my husband actually took pretty much two and a half years away from drinking. So a year after I stopped drinking, he decided he was going to step away from alcohol and he had his own reasons about why he decided to do that, but he he had his own sort of problematic relationship with alcohol that mm. led to other sort of drug taking and I won't you know I won't go into his story because it's his story really to tell, but he decided that he needed to have a complete break mm-hmm. And so both of us did not drink for and I'm obviously still not drinking and it's only I guess in the past two or three months that he has decided to go back and have one or two drinks. Mm. And I was really nervous about it initially, but um, it's his journey and it has been absolutely fine Mm. and it's a very different situation than the one that we are in before. But it has changed our social life a lot Mm. because I don't feel motivated in the same way to go to bars or hang around drinking. It's just not what I want to do anymore. So we find other ways of connecting. We walk. Uh, we we still both love going to the footy. Uh, and we spend a lot more time at home just talking, which yeah. I, really, I really love. I love being at home now. Mm. I find it a beautiful retreat. It feels like my own little retreat being at home now, whereas before I'd always be looking for opportunities to get away from home, whereas now I'm always looking at opportunities to stay home, which I think comes with the benefit of finding home in your heart and in yourself. So when you feel Mm. comfortable there, you feel comfortable being with yourself. And so that for me has probably been the most beautiful gift of, you know, the last few years of sobriety have been so much about a real appreciation for myself Mm. and the beautiful heart that I have and the gifts that I bring to the world. That resonates so much with me. I feel
0: so the same way. What I love about that is, like we said before, you were drinking to escape. So something has obviously shifted in your life where you no longer need to run and all of a sudden, rather than looking outside to fix inside, you're going inside to then project back out to the world.
1: Yeah. And look, this is obviously a really beautiful segue to six weeks into my decision to take an extended break from drinking I was thrown a huge curveball I it was almost like I had a download I was in the shower really busy getting ready for work and um, it was almost like I had this voice that came to me and said you need to go and look at your body in the mirror straight away so I did I just had my undies on I looked it was a a, just a brand new floor-to-wall mirror that we'd only bought a couple of months beforehand, mm. and I looked at my body, and my eyes went straight to my right breast, and there I saw this raised skin, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And I can just remember that feeling in my body, like I just I couldn't breathe, and I just it was like gasping, and I felt it, and it felt like this sort of hard lump, mm. and I sort of tried to press it away and then i tried to call out and scream out to my husband and i couldn't get the i couldn't get it out and i just felt it was like my whole world changed in that instant mm. and i knew then that that i had breast cancer i just knew it and i'm not someone who jumps to um you know the negative but i just i knew yeah. and so you know within a week of finding that lump i was you know sitting in the red chemo chair at Epworth and all of a sudden at the age of 46 I'm thinking, oh, I wasn't expecting to have this question of my mortality really knock me for six right now. And with that though came this most incredible gift of presence. And I know presence gets talked about but when – You're in the vortex of this first two weeks of a cancer diagnosis and you don't really know what is going to unfold. You just want everything to slow down. Mm. You just want life to – you just want to live. Mm. And so I started to focus on all the ordinary beautiful moments in my life and it made me realise that that is actually all that we have and that thinking about doing a renovation or having more none of that mattered to me it was about I wanted to be there to see my boys grow up but I also wanted there wanted to be there to see myself age and go into you know uh, my 50s and 60s and 70s Mm. and so that was such a beautiful place to be though for me because I thought, you know what, when I'm through my treatment, I'm always going to remember how I felt at this point in time. Mm. And so every day now I tap into that and I come back to that place and I find awe, magic, joy in everyday normal things. Mm. And that's what sustains, sustains me, knowing that things can change in an instant and we don't have control over it. Life can just throw so much at us all the time. Mm. And when it, when I looked at drinking, I was like, oh, my gosh, I have spent so much time out of my mind and my body and not present in my life because of my drinking through blackouts, through not remembering, through hazy memories I just thought, wow, I want to be present in mm. all moments. And that was, yeah, that was it. Because there's, that's it, isn't it? Alcohol takes
0: us away from the magic of life and those magic moments that can be sometimes in the most mundane parts of life. But if you're drinking and you're not present to experience it, you miss it. Life passes you by. Oh, it really does. Was there any time, because I'm thinking in my head, you've got 30 years of drinking and using alcohol as a tool to escape yeah. and then you get given this diagnosis of this aggressive form of breast cancer. Was there any part of you
1: that thought, fuck it, I just want to escape? Yes, there absolutely was. Those thoughts came in. They they definitely did. The thoughts came in initially of this is not a good time to stop drinking. <laughs> you've just had the most challenging news of your life, Uh, you know, you should just be able to have a couple of drinks. That should be okay. But look, very quickly I came to another thought which was uh, if I'm wanting to be in the best version of myself to work through this, then probably the choice to drink is not a great one. Mm. And so I felt good about that. And I thought, hmm, I started to think a bit more about, so I saw the diagnosis as an opportunity to learn a lot more about myself and maybe the reasons why this had come about in my life. For me, it wasn't just a physical diagnosis, it was an opportunity to look at my you know my spiritual life my physical my emotional life my choices Uh, and so I really embraced it as a healing journey Mm. and I embraced it as an opportunity to create I guess a different version of myself to the one that was diagnosed with breast cancer there was a lot of healing to do and one of the things that came up was the lifestyle factor of my chronic binge drinking Mm. and how I wondered if that had had an impact on this diagnosis and whether or not I could find out more about alcohol consumption and increased breast cancer risk. And that's when I started to do some more research. You
0: did, didn't you? You dived headfirst into uncovering all of this information. Can you share with our listeners what
1: did you learn about this? Yeah, so, you know, very quickly I started to, you know, Google (laughs) alcohol and breast cancer and it was very obvious straight away that there have been studies done for a long period of time, you know, for over 30 years. There's hundreds of studies that prove the links between alcohol consumption and increased breast cancer risk. And I was like, why don't we know more about this? Why haven't I heard about this? Why haven't any of the doctors that I've spoken to since my diagnosis even asked me about my drinking or even spoken about alcohol in this conversation. Mm. So I started to feel, I guess I started to feel motivated because I thought, wow, what what a set of circumstances. For whatever reason, six weeks before this diagnosis, I decided to completely, you know, give away drinking. Mm. Now I have this diagnosis. I've got these two kind of life experiences that are happening here i'm going to be able to do something here Mm. so i decided that you know in terms of advocacy work that would be something that i would do down the track and that i would start to have conversations and start to do more research around it and look what i you know found i guess one of the best uh one of one of the best resources that i found for me was based out of America uh, and it's called it's a website called drink less for your breasts and it's all backed by you know scientific studies and all the information there unfortunately didn't say excessive drinking increases breast cancer risk it is low to moderate drinking that increases your wow. breast cancer risk so by low to moderate one drink a day seven drinks a week, can increase your overall breast cancer risk by up to 20%. So it's not excessive drinking. Every drink you have increases your overall breast cancer risk. Every drink you choose not to have decreases your overall breast cancer risk. And, of course, there are plenty of people who excessively drink and never get breast cancer. And Mm. there are plenty of people who don't drink much and do. So, you know, I'm, I'm not here to, to say if you drink a lot, you will get breast cancer. But the studies show that particularly with estrogen-driven breast cancer, which is the type that I had, alcohol increases the circulating estrogen in, us, in our system, which can then lead to the growth of breast cancer. And I had very high estrogen levels in my breast cancer. So for me it felt really empowering to think okay this lifestyle factor of binge drinking may have an, had an impact on my um, my diagnosis but in moving forward because I no longer choose to drink I have a huge way of I guess empowering myself to uh, reduce my risk now that um, I'm not drinking. Mm-hmm. So Uh, that's you know that for me has been something that's felt really good with my health and well-being uh, since I've moved through treatment um, and recovery and you know now post-cancer why do you think it is that we're not having more conversations
0: about this we're not hearing more about it
1: well and I think it, this isn't just related to to breast cancer. I think it's related to a number of areas. I just think that, you know, big alcohol has its claws into so many corporate and government areas. Uh, it's about money and power. And I, I guess for me, I would love to see a public health campaign directly targeted, a national public health campaign directly targeted at women around drinking and breast cancer, mm. uh, I think it's really important. Breast cancer, you know, there are over 20,000 women diagnosed with breast cancer every year, and um, you know, 57 people are diagnosed every day. It's huge. Wow. And you know, we're coming to learn that, you know, between five and ten percent of breast cancer cases are probably linked to. To directly linked to alcohol consumption mm. so that's thousands of cases a year it's a lot it's mind-blowing really mm.
0: and like we were chatting about before we started recording this today this idea that big alcohol has just marketed itself so well that we associate drinking with good times being social celebration this other side of the coin is never discussed not in these open public
1: forums and that's why we need to be having these conversations oh absolutely and I'm really big on the conversation coming into employers taking more responsibility for alcohol problems particularly in corporate workplace mm. there's a lot now around you know protecting the mental health and well-being of mm. employees but where is the conversation about alcohol and the role that that plays.
0: Well it's so funny isn't it because you know I come from corporate as well and it's almost like they're ticking the box of having these mental health campaigns or conversations or you know become a mental health first aider and then they're funneling booze down your throat at the end of the week.
1: Absolutely absolutely and that's the thing often I mean a lot of my clients uh You know, uh, women and men in their 40s and 50s who work in professional corporate jobs doing really well, but underneath it all, alcohol has played a huge role in their workplace and is one of the reasons why they're having so many issues with it, Mm. because even binge drinking in the workplace, if you're looking after clients, uh, it's accepted. Mm. And I imagine a lot of your clients would
0: identify with this idea of hiding behind a smile if they're these corporate professionals who are high functioning, they're maintaining a high output in their life, but then they pick up a drink and they can't control their behaviour or they end up waking up the next morning having had the fight or the conversation that they
1: don't remember with that guilt, shame and remorse. Absolutely. And it's interesting, often They've been encouraged to use the work corporate credit card to, you know, take clients out and spend money on drinks. But then as soon as they do something that's out of line, they're given a warning about their behaviour and they're told to rein it in (laughs) when actually the employer needs to take some responsibility for actually enabling this behaviour and helping and supporting them to uh, maybe look at it and, Mm. and, you know, seek the help of a counsellor or a coach or or whatever they might need. Mm. It's quite funny, isn't it, because
0: the intention is to go out and consume alcohol. Now, we know that alcohol gets you drunk, but then all of a sudden there's this shock and surprise when the person gets drunk. Like alcohol's <laughs> just done exactly what it was designed to do in that situation, and it's not a moral failing. Like it affects people differently. And there's a whole host of things it could be that week you're particularly stressed or you haven't eaten enough. Like there's so many other factors in how our body
1: responds to alcohol on any given day. Absolutely. I mean, we know ourselves from our own drinking that it really depends on each day, doesn't it? The stress levels, how much you've eaten, all of that kind of thing as to how it will actually impact you. And the interesting thing, uh, you know, I had a number of clients who did their whole leading up into Christmas and then Christmas and New Year sober. And the reflections from them about socialising at work sober over that time, were they just couldn't believe how much a they enjoyed it b how much better it was for business because they could remember conversations yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they had clarity over making good decisions about you know what to do next rather than waking up the next day and thinking mm, I'm not really sure what I said that last 2 hours so I'll just pretend that you know we didn't have that conversation mm. it's crazy
0: Kath just before you touched on this idea of getting sober and enhancing your spiritual life and the healing journey that you've been on and I've also heard you talk before about when you gave up alcohol you found this deep connection with the person that you wanted to be can you elaborate on this a little bit more for me
1: yeah sure look I think at in its most simple terms when I was drinking, I was numbing and I was not really connected to, I guess, if you're talking about that that, ener- that energy of the, the soul of the person that I really was, from when I was born, really, I couldn't feel that. Mm. And once alcohol was taken away, I started to feel that intuition and I started to really feel connected to this deep sense of integrity Mm. and that I could prioritise me and that this whole idea of people pleasing and doing things for others and making decisions because I thought I should rather than what I really wanted to do based on a decision from my gut, Mm. not from my head. Mm. And so that's been such an important part of my sober journey has been really connecting in with my my intuition and my gut and trusting that and having a real belief in in that and
0: aside from not drinking how do you then develop that connection with self because you know it's all good and well to stop drinking but then if you go and abuse sugar or you smoke a packet of cigarettes a day like you're probably still going to remain disconnected what are what have you done
1: that's allowed you to really forge this this deep inner knowing yeah that's a great question ash and it's still it's still an ongoing journey for me Uh, I I spend and I think I've already mentioned this I spend a lot of time in nature I find that is a place of real refuge for me where I re-energize and I can connect with myself. Yeah. Uh, I find it in music as well. Um, I love the vibration in music and closing my eyes and listening to music and feeling that is just it really it connects me with a another part of part of myself. Uh, I I think one of the other things that's become very important to me is Slowing down and like mm. slowing right down uh, and allowing things to unfold that you don't even know are going to. Just giving yourself time and space because in that time and space is when you know the gifts come. And mm. so for me, before I was a sober person, I was constantly busy and trying to schedule things in, whereas now it's the opposite. Mm. I'm trying to schedule things out but like tomorrow i've scheduled in a half day walk up in alinda with some girlfriends and so i do that now each week i'll schedule in just some time to go away and reconnect with mother nature have some silence and just come back to you know t- to myself mm. the busy mind isn't there i'm just able to slow down so i think for me the the actual art of slowing down and also knowing that our life is there for us to create we create our life and i think for me i realized when i was drinking i was a real bystander and a passenger i wasn't creating my life mm. and so now i tap into that intuition and make decisions about how am i going to create what i want to happen in my life mm. And it's just intentional, inspired action that you take to achieve that. Mm. And so, you know, I, I know that because I do it all the time. And that's how you make things happen in your life. And that's how I made sobriety happen in my life. Mm. That is
0: so beautiful.
1: I love that. Kath, if somebody's
0: listening today and they identify as being a binge drinker, mm. but The story in their head is, I couldn't possibly give up drinking forever. What would you say to them?
1: (laughs) I'd say, well, you know what? Everything is possible. And I think you need to just be open to any possibility there. But that if you are struggling with binge drinking, that you're not alone that there are so many people, millions of people all over the world who completely understand where you're at and I'm one of them. Uh, You know, whether you're having blowouts, blackouts, bedwetting, you know, loss of memories, relationship issues, it's something that a lot of us experience when we're binge drinkers and that there is support and that it takes time and that there's a beautiful community of people who are there for you and that the first port of call is often just to start listening to a podcast like this start to do some reading there are some wonderful books around just to start to explore your relationship with alcohol a bit further mm. it starts with an inquisitive curious mind you can't do everything at once but I think the most important place to start is with some compassion for yourself. Mm. Try not to get locked into shame and blame and that you're the only one with a problem because you're absolutely not. Certainly not. And
0: I think the other thing that's important to note is if you try a stint of sobriety and then you drink again, that's also not a failure. Any period of time away from alcohol will be beneficial to your life. So it doesn't have to necessarily look like the person who's got 30 years of unbroken sobriety if that's not your reality. And remember, like, there's differences in people's drinking styles. Some people identify as being alcoholic. They need to abstain completely from alcohol and never drink again. Some people identify as being binge drinkers. They want to go for extended periods, but it's not necessarily a life commitment. Like there are so many grey areas and colourful areas, I would even say, within this journey.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's such a great point that you make. I mean, the alcohol use disorder spectrum is absolutely huge. And what I may see as problematic drinking in my life might be very different to what someone else sees as Mm. problematic drinking in their life. And whether you use labels uh, to identify as an alcoholic or a binge drinker or a daily drinker or whatever it is, if they work for you and empower you, that's really important. Mm. I think the most important thing is is that we, as humans, we all, um, I guess, connect with different resources, different approaches, different methodology. So I'm very much of the belief that all support that is here is fantastic because I've had, you know, I've had many clients come to me who've seen drug and alcohol counsellors, who've seen psychologists and it hasn't worked for them. Mm. But they've come to me as a coach who has a lived experience of a binge drinking issue and I can identify, you know, Mm. with them. And so they feel non-judged and they feel like, ah, she gets it. Mm. You've just touched on something that I think is so
0: important
1: and it's the power of identification, isn't it? Oh, it's – I mean, I often ask clients what their most favourite thing is about working with me or a coaching program. And, of course, they love the content, but the most important thing for them is the connection, Mm. the vulnerable connection and being able to share with someone who absolutely understands at a cellular level what they're talking about and what they've gone through and that they have worked through it themselves and freed themselves. Yeah, how powerful.
0: Kath, we're coming towards the end of our chat, which makes me so sad because oh, no. I feel like I could talk <laughs> to you for hours. Oh. There's one final question that I love to ask all of my guests. Now that is, what are your three non-negotiables that allow you to live a life today that is happy, joyous and free?
1: <gasps> only three ash oh my god <laughs> i know it's hard it really really is and look i think i've already mentioned a couple of these just through our conversation but one of the most important things for me is connecting in with the present of the everyday it has been so powerful for me mm. connecting in with what today is and seeking out or enjoy in those ordinary moments so it'll be when I, um, I was at the park this morning, the sun was coming up, I closed my eyes and I felt her beautiful rays of warmth on my face and I thought this is magic, this is so beautiful. I looked at the colour of the sun and I, I felt my heart really explode and so I take time for those moments and that absolutely guides me. It makes me feel so happy that I can find that now because beforehand I was on this treadmill and I was missing all of these moments Mm. and in an alcohol-free life I see so much more of them because I'm intentional I create time for them and I see the value Mm. the value in them so that's you know that that's really one of them and I think what you've
0: explained there and something I'd love for the listeners to really understand here is don't wait until you have the diagnosis. Don't wait until the news that you never want to hear. Like you can appreciate the present moment
1: right here, right now. Start today. So true. Absolutely. I love that you've brought that up because I often get asked the question do you have to go through, you know, a really traumatic experience to be able to really feel that? No, you don't. Mm. You actually just have to have the intention and start. Start to practice it. Mm. The other, the other uh, thing that's really important for me is, you know, movement and meditation. These are two very powerful things that I have in my life. And movement can be exercise or yoga. It can be walking. It can be stretching. It can be dancing. Whatever it is, but I love moving and being in my body, and. I have a practice of uh, Vedic meditation that has also just been incredibly powerful mm. for me and again helps with the present being present, but also being in my in my own heart, mm. which is you know where uh, which is a place I like to be these days. Yeah wow. And then the third is is probably, I think a connection to community. Mm. and it doesn't matter what that is so for me community is so many things but it's spending time nurturing that so there's my sober coach community there's my community of of women who I'm very connected with in Hawthorne there's my family there's the community in my local cafe, mm. you know, it's spending time nurturing those relationships and giving to people. So giving kindness. Even when I'm driving the car now, I, I like to try and connect with people when I'm driving and giving them a smile and and just that human, you know, that human connection because what it reminds us all of is that yes, we're different, but we're all one. We're actually all bonded together. Mm. And when you smile, you know, that actually lights up something in someone else. And mm. so that for me, again, you know, try, trying to share that, that joy and that 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 laughter and that smiling mm. sort of energy, passing that on through community. I love
0: that. I'm a, I'm a big one of the, the smile to the stranger. I absolutely love it. You know, it costs you nothing. And it's something that you can give freely to every single person that you
1: encounter throughout your day. Oh, it's so true. And, you know, I've had a number of people, strangers say to me that my smile or acknowledgement has actually made their day Yeah, because you don't know what's going on for them. You never know. And when they receive that, it's just really beautiful. Mm. Kath, I am so sure that our listeners are
0: going to want to find out more about you and everything you do. So if they are
1: interested, where should they go to find you? Sure. So my business is thealcoholmindsetcoach.com. My Instagram is at thealcoholmindsetcoach. Fabulous. I'll make sure I pop those details in the
0: episode show notes. We say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank you so, so much for driving over here, for joining me in the studio today, for sharing your story and for creating this Really important awareness around alcohol and the link to breast
1: cancer. Thanks, Ash. It's been such a pleasure to be here. Big hugs and smiles. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>